So I don't know how you're going, but we're into week seven of church history. How's that? Are you hanging in there? Okay, admittedly I'm, I'm focusing on the scriptures, but, but tossing in the um, uh, elements of church history that have been, been impacted in people's lives throughout the years. Cheryl, could you pass this back to um, Lee, please? So this morning, I wonder if you've seen this. Uh, we are looking at uh, the Jesuits and that might be an unfamiliar term for some of us who are non-Catholics, but the Jesuits had, a, had an incredible evangelistic impact in the time of around the um, uh, mid-1500s, 1500 AD, and continued to be a powerful force uh, throughout the world today in an educational sphere. But I wonder if you'd recognise this photo. Anybody seen somebody doing that? Anybody had a go? Anybody done any metal detecting? No one? Some have? What, what happens when you detect some metal? What, what's the sound? Oh, very good. I was, you didn't know I was going to ask you that, did you? No. So, yeah, uh, when we lived near the coast, it was a regular sight uh, down on the Sunshine Coast early in the morning or late in the afternoon. People would be out there with their headphones on and their little metal detector and their, their basket so that if they come across anything, they dig down, scoop up the sand, sift it through and see what they found. Surprisingly, I don't know if you can read this guy's shirt. No. But it says ring finders. And... Uh, this fellow, I read a bit of his background, he had a bucket full of wedding rings and engagement rings and necklaces and all this sort of stuff that he'd found just on the beach that he does alone. And uh, surprisingly enough, was able to return some of them to their owners if they had a name or, a, or some indication. In them. It's amazing, isn't it? But the, the people that do this, and we, had, we live next door, when we first came to Atherton, we lived next door to a, a very serious prospector. And... Uh, he and his wife would, would go and spend weeks up at the Palmer River gold fields, hoping to find the gold that was left there from when they uh, mined that area. And he would show me his latest and greatest metal detector. And uh, it was like, uh, for some of us who are not uh, computer orientated, he had all, had all the bells and whistles and I couldn't understand a word of what he was saying. But when he, when he showed me how it worked, I thought, I could get hooked on this. But I didn't, I didn't. There's this fascination with finding treasure for a lot of people. Uh, for a number of years, I looked into the Lassiter's Reef, Gold Reef. Anybody look into that over the years? Anybody know the history of that? No? Somewhere in central Australia, this fellow, I think his name was Bill Lassiter, said that there's this gold reef that he only came across once and he couldn't remember where it was. So he spent the rest of his life looking for it, never found it, neither has anybody else. But... Uh, it's one of those myths, possible truths that people search for treasuring. Well, I mean, it happens in our community now in, in the form of um, garage sales. Anybody ever been to a garage sale recently? Yes, yes, yes. What are you looking for? And I, I reckon people are look, some people are looking for needs that they might need to be met. You know, it might be an item that they're looking for. But I reckon everybody underlying that has this need to find somebody else's trash that becomes your treasure. And uh, I used to watch occasionally those shows on telly, uh, Antiques Roadshow. Anybody watch that? The, uh, these are two British um, roadshows. Uh, BBC produced them, Antique Roadshow and Antiques Road Trip. And I was astounded by people that had these collectibles or these uh, heirlooms that they'd had collecting dust for years, brought them along to the uh, analysis 
and uh, were told that they had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth sitting collecting dust in their house. So people wanted to discover whether they had some treasure, some treasure of sort. Well, today we're going on a, tre- a treasure hunt. Uh, when, when our kids were little, we used to love hiding clues around the house. Have you ever done that? You know, hiding clues, you know, you open this clue and it says take five steps to, the, to your right or something like this and another clue. And usually at the end of that there was a wonderful surprise. And so we used to love doing that. Uh, as, I was, as I grew older and uh, became more of a driver, we used to have car rallies that were treasure hunt car rallies. You know, you, you go and get some clues here and you go and get some clues there. And it was, it was not just the end prize that was fun, it was the journey that was great. And I think that's half the fun of looking for treasures. But Jesus tells us that we are on a treasure hunt in our walk of life. And that, that to be seeking the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of, uh, kingdom of God through the gospel of Christ is a part of a treasure hunt. And he's given us some clues in, in the book of Matthew. He's given us some clues about how to find this treasure. We're going to find out about how to discover this coveted prize that Jesus talks about. And I trust this morning that you'll be able to get excited about the treasure that we have discovered. And it's a lifelong journey because we never have it in full. We discover Jesus and we walk with him day by day and so that every day can be part of that treasure hunt or that search for treasure with Jesus. Leave it this morning. This is the verses I want to look at. Just three verses this morning, so you don't have to go to lots of places. I will be using other verses, but these three are the focus. Two parables that Jesus told out of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through to 46. And this is what verse 44 says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, I don't know if you've ever done anything like that. I don't know if there's something that you've been looking for or you've been planning for and uh, it took all that you had. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about energy, time, thought to achieve that end. That's the sort of thing that this story is about. This treasure was something that was so valuable that the fellow sold everything he had so that he could own that field that the treasure was in. Jesus used this illustration often. In Matthew chapter 4, he used the illustration of uh, the value of the treasure. This word is an interesting word. It's the word thesaurus. Who knows what a thesaurus is? It's not a dinosaur. If you're good with Microsoft Word or the others, the thesaurus is a lookup of what that means, of what that word means. And, And in fact, the word thesaurus means a treasury of words. So this treasure was valuable words, was, was the words of life, if you like, that was being looked for. Matthew, uh, in the Jewish rabbinic law, we're told that if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. We've got a term for that these days, don't we? Finders, keepers. Okay? So, if you find this treasure of Jesus, guess what? You can keep it. Because that's exactly what, what he wants us to do. He wants us to find the treasure who is Jesus. And so there's this, there's this underlying story that Jesus is bringing about because the Jews knew this teaching and he was trying to say to them, look for the treasure, find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. In doing that, you'll find me. It was hidden treasure. 
Oh, it was hidden treasure. And this hidden treasure was not easily discoverable like the little video showed us. It wasn't there just for all to see, but it was there for those who were looking for it. And isn't that true in our world today? There are people that could find Jesus, but they're not looking in the right places. They're looking in places where they will achieve something themselves rather than looking to find Jesus, who is the greatest treasure of all. I wonder, have you found the treasure of Jesus? Have you found the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? The second part of this, or the next part of this, uh, these verses are another parable. It's called the priceless pearl. And verse 45 and verse 46 says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It must have been a beauty. It must have been rare. And in those days, um, the pearls, pearls were not easy to come by. Pearls were more valuable, as it were, than gold or diamonds to a lot of people because of the energy required to get them. The interesting thing about the word pearl is that in Greek it's the word emporus. Emporus. We get our word emporium from it, which is a shop, you know, a shop of uh, lots of items. So it was a valuable place. It was a shop where things could be secured and purchased. They were generally the needs of life or, in some cases, the extravagances of life. And so this word, this word for pearl was something that was not easily come by it was valuable. It was something that could be uh, kept and the value would increase. In those days, uh, this is what, 2,000 plus, 2,000 years ago, pearl divers used to tie a stone uh, with a rope onto their legs and over the boat down to hold that down there so they could look for uh, the pearls, the oysters and the pearls. And I'm told uh, through Mr Wikipedia that uh, in those days, three tonnes of oysters may have uh, supplied four or five uh, perfect pearls. That's a lot of time underwater, a lot of time tied to a rock. I'm sure they came up for a breath every now and then. So for the people of the day, and Jesus using this illustration, that's why pearls were so precious. Revelation 21, if you know the last uh, few chapters of Revelation, we're told that the, the city will have 12 gates and there'll be 12 giant pearls. Why did Jesus use that? Because of how precious they were. How precious the entry into the, city, into the New Jerusalem was. The Jewish Talmud said that pearls are beyond price. And the Egyptians actually worshipped the pearls. So, so people of Jesus' day, when he told the story of this pearl, they identified with how valuable it was and why that person gave up so much. The parable itself, let's talk about this for a minute. What was that merchant doing? He was on a mission and his mission was looking for fine pearls. So he was a pearl merchant and the phrase of great uh, value in some translations is that is that same meaning as priceless. It was a priceless pearl. You couldn't put any value onto it. It was more than what anybody could afford. When he sold everything, you know what he sold? His fine collection of pearls. 
So he sold all these other valuable pearls that he might have this one pearl. It must have been that important to him. What's Jesus trying to say to us from these kingdom parables? I believe he's trying to tell us that knowing Christ is priceless. Can we buy our way to knowing Jesus? It's been tried. You remember the story of uh, uh, in the Acts when, uh, was it Magus, Magus, M-A-G-U-S? He tried to buy his way to get the miracles from the apostles and they said, no, you can't buy it. One commentator said this about the price, the cost, oops, too far. The point of the parable is that glad recognition of God's rule over heart and life is a treasure. When we allow God to rule our heart and life, it's a treasure so inestimably precious that one who obtains it is willing to surrender for it whatever could interfere with having it. Do you understand that? So if there's, if there's anything that's going to interfere with us having that priceless treasure of Christ, then that's what we give away. That's what we give up. That's what we surrender. The question for us today is, do we prize knowing Jesus more than anything else? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I forgot to put it up there, says that while our bodies are like clay pots, what believers have inside our bodies, that relationship with Jesus, is a priceless treasure. How much do we value what Jesus has done for us? Into the church history mode, the Jesuits. You might know this name, Ignatius of Loyola. Anybody know that name? Ignatius of Loyola. He was a Spaniard. He was a Spaniard. Spanish nobleman from the north part of Spain. Initially, uh, in his adult life, he was a soldier and in one of the battles that he fought, he was wounded. Not mortally, but wounded enough to actually come out of the battle and have some respite. During that time, God touched his life. We don't know if God healed him, but we do know that God met him in a very significant way. And from that time on, Ignatius chose to surrender his life his nobility, all his wealth, all his possessions to be available to do what God wanted him to do. So he, along with uh, six other uh, like-minded men, took on some vows, vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. So he gave up a lot. Gave up a lot of the normal stuff that all of us would would, uh, live in our lives. And those, the, through these six men, they chose to do that together. They chose to study the scriptures. They became priests. And ultimately, they formed an organisation called the Com- Compania de, de Jesus, the Company of Jesus. And it's been known throughout the world since then as the Society of Jesus. I think I put it up there. Yep. The Society of Jesus. And today, we know of it as the Jesuits. And what they did was, they realised that by living lives of poverty, chastity and obedience to the word of God, they could actually connect with people who are in, 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 in poverty areas. And they chose to go to those places, out of the way places. Gee, I think we've heard this story before with the Irish monks, didn't we, last week? They chose, chose to go to isolated places, generally beyond the large cities. They didn't build monasteries and anything like that. They built schools. And they chose to educate the people, the common people. In, uh, in, in, in literature and in, in mathematics, sciences and things like that. 
They did that because they felt God wanted them to offload everything that would prevent them from chasing the pearl of great price, the kingdom of God, the reality of Jesus in their lives. It was a big step for a Spanish nobleman to give up all that he had to live a life of poverty. And you know, they, wherever they went, God always provided for them through the generosity of the people wherever they went because they were offering to uh, educate the folks in those places so God looked after them. So knowing Christ is priceless, what do we do daily that says, Lord, I'm setting aside this because I want to know you more today? It's a choice that we all make. The second thing coming out of the parable is that uh, spiritual truth is often hidden. Would you agree? I don't know about you, but I love diving into the Bible. I love, I love pulling words to pieces. I love doing the... I don't see anybody else looking excited about that this morning. I love getting the dictionary out. I love getting the commentaries out. I, love, I used to love um, being able to read Greek and Hebrew. I've sort of lost that over the years. But when I was doing it, it was great. So I still use some of the, uh, the uh, translations where I can go back and see that and just understand a bit more the complexity of the Word of God as far as meaning goes, but the simplicity of it as far as application goes. So I love diving in because often spiritual truth is hidden. And I've got to be honest, I don't understand everything in the Scriptures because I think God's got more to show me. But he can't show me if I'm not looking for it. So I encourage you, if you're not into daily Bible reading, uh, there's plenty of of, uh, helps out there, whether it's an app on your phone or some booklets that you can get for free or a Bible reading guide. Dive into the Word of God, not just to read it, but to say, God, what are you saying to me today from your Word? I want to understand some more of the treasure that's hidden in your Word. So for many people, though, spiritual truth is hidden and there's a lot of people in our community that are on uh, searching for spiritual truth but sadly, like I said earlier, they're looking in the wrong places. I wonder, how can we point them to the right places? Some of the spiritual truth that they're going to see is in how we live our lives now. If we're seeking to be ambassadors for Christ, if we're seeking to be followers of Jesus, then some of the spiritual truth they'll see is how we live our life out. That's an incredible responsibility, isn't it? And, and sadly, some of us make mistakes. And that's often what people remember rather than the good things that they see, what God's doing in our lives. Jesus said this, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He's talking to his disciples, those that were working with him, walking with him, journeying with him. They have chosen to believe in Jesus. So he had opened their eyes to the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, that's true in the world today. Even though people are seeking, they're not seeking in the right place, so their eyes are blinkered, their eyes are closed. We need to pray for our friends and our loved ones and our families that God will let those blinkers fall off, that let those scales fall off, that their eyes might be open to the truth of the gospel. Because even Paul says this, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So even though people are seeking, if their mind is closed to the idea of God, the idea of Jesus as the saviour of the world, they won't won't understand spiritual truths. Satan's at work. He's trying to keep people blinded. What does this say? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you are aware of somebody that you're praying for, pray against the, the um, influence of Satan in their lives, that blinding influence. Ask God to, stand, to, to remove that so they might be open to see the light of Christ. That's the treasure that they're looking for. That's the treasure that we know. Another principle of the parable is that salvation must be personally adopted. You can't be saved for somebody else. They need to see the light of Christ for themselves. They need to have their eyes opened to a personal and individual response to Jesus. Unless you are personally and individually born again, you cannot enter God's kingdom. That's one of the principles of the gospel. Unless you're seeking for that treasure, unless your eyes are open to that treasure, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that each person must respond individually. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light. It's a personal adoption, a personal responsibility. In Romans 10, one of my favourite verses, you know this one, don't you? Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you learn any verses other than John 3.16, learn these. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Amen? Yeah. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. But people are not looking for that. They're blinded to that. So we need to pray that their eyes will be opened, that the scales will fall away, that they will believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. We know how fragile life is. Here one minute, gone the next, like a vapour. And none of us really know how long we'll live. Most of our friends and families don't know that either. But what did the man in the field do when he found that treasure? What did the uh, merchant do when he found that pearl? Immediately, there's that sense of urgency. Straight away, he goes, they go and sell everything they have so they might own that treasure. And I think it's the same thing for us. We need to make sure that we, day by day, are doing what God tells us to do. We need to pray that our friends and our family and our loved ones, when the light is shone in their life, in their life through the gospel of Jesus, that they choose immediately to respond. We can't make them, but we can pray that way. We can pray that way. A, th- a fourth principle is Jesus is the only way to be saved, but people are saved in different ways. Now, let me see if I can explain that. Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's what the Bible says. Uh, there's no other way to get to God. But there are different ways that people come to that point. I wonder if you, uh, if you uh, have had this experience. That man, when he was searching through the field, did he, was he out there with a shovel and a backhoe? No, it says he stumbled on the treasure. And there are people, I believe, that stumble into Christ. Any, I wonder if that's been your experience, that, that you weren't intending to be a follower of Jesus, but somewhere along the way, God revealed himself to you and you stumbled into that relationship. Isaiah says that. In Isaiah, he says, God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. God broke into human history and sometimes God allows people to stumble into faith. 
I wonder if Paul could say he stumbled into faith as Saul. I mean, God lit up his life. He wasn't intending to follow Jesus. In fact, he was out and out against Jesus. And yet on that day, he's confronted with Jesus. Maybe he stumbled into faith. But certainly as a result of that, many other things happened. What about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 when Paul prevented him from killing himself because all the gates of the jail had flung open? The man said, what must I do to be saved? And he stumbled into Christ. I used some of the aspects of this sermon from one of John MacArthur's sermons that I read from time to time and he told the story about uh, this guy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Do you know him? We know of him. Uh, British preacher, uh, last century, uh, spoke to thousands of people at a time. But John MacArthur tells his story that when, when Charles Spurgeon was young, he attended church regularly because it was the right thing to do. But he didn't know Jesus. It was a habit rather than a relationship. And he wasn't really seeking Christ. It was just the right thing to do. So he was content with religiosity rather than a relationship with Jesus. When he was 15, he decided to go to church on New Year's Day in England, which was, um, there was a blizzard uh, and a snowstorm. And the person that wrote his his biography recorded this story. Because there was such a blizzard, he wasn't able to reach the church that he used to go to regularly. So he says, when I couldn't go any further, I turned down a a road and came to a, a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher who was to have conducted the service that day never got there because he was held up by the foul weather. And quickly one of the officers or deacons of the church had to be brought forward to conduct the service with the congregation. There was perhaps 15 people there. The man said Spurgeon was really stupid. His text was, look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. Look under me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon goes on to say, he said, and he just kept repeating it because he didn't have anything else to say. That's why he called him stupid. And something about young Spurgeon caught the preacher's eye. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. You will be if you don't obey my text. And suddenly he literally shouted, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. And Spurgeon said, I looked and then there was a cloud that was gone. The darkness rolled away and at that moment I saw the sun. So preachers be encouraged that God takes some of us even who are stupid. It's the power of God's word alone. What was his text? Look unto me, Jesus said. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon wasn't searching for anything but Jesus got him just the same. He stumbled into a fortune. He stumbled into a treasure. I don't know who that guy was, Spurgeon said, but he kept on repeating the text. But it was God who touched my life. Some people stumble into Christ. The Jesuits, as they went around, they stumbled into lots of different communities. I don't know how well you can see that map, but the red lines on the right 
the Spanish Jesuits that left Spain and they predominantly went to Central Americas and South America. The Portuguese Jesuits uh, travelled around Africa and ended up in India and Japan. They went to those places because God was calling them to go there. It wasn't always easy. They weren't always accepted. Surprisingly, when they went to Japan, the um, government granted them uh, freedom to set up their school and to preach in Japan for eight years and then the government shut them down because Christianity was becoming too popular. (laughs) Too many people were believing in Jesus and so the government shut them down. But in in the Americas, in Central America, in Peru and Colombia and and Bolivia, there was a, a real warmth by the people of accepting not only the Jesuits as people but the teaching that brought about Jesus Christ. They stumbled into those places because that's where God led them and God did a mighty thing through them in those places. Other people come because they seek out Christ. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you were one of the the, uh, merchantmen, uh, uh, pearl merchants or you were someone that was seeking truth in life And somebody told you about Jesus and then you started your journey of looking for Jesus. Perhaps you're someone that seeks out Christ. John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at that last day. When someone is reaching out for God, God will bring them to himself. The pearl merchant is dissatisfied with what he had and he searches with determination to find the best pearl. There's only one pearl, he believes, that can satisfy him. When he finds what he's looking for, he makes a decision to commit himself completely to acquiring it. In fact, Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses wrote this, he says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. So I say, I, I believe some people are, are looking for God, but it's not with all their heart and with all their soul. It's a fad. It's the latest fad. But when God sees the intentions and desires of our heart, then he'll draw people to himself. Maybe you weren't looking for God, but God came looking for you. I wonder if there are people here today that are still searching for the truth and haven't come into that personal and intimate relationship with the living God. God is looking for you and God welcomes you. Another principle of this parable is that knowing Jesus should lead to joy. If you're an unhappy person now that you follow Jesus, then, then if you're unhappier now than before when you weren't following Jesus, there's something wrong. I'm not, thinking, I'm not talking about smiling in the midst of struggles or difficulties. I'm talking about a deep-seated joy that can't be shaken no matter what comes along in the circumstances of life. The man who stumbled upon this treasure went in his joy and sold everything in order to gain even more. It literally means from the joy of it, from the joy of finding the treasure, he went with joy. John fifteen eleven, Jesus says, I've told you this to his disciples so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. There's not too many places where I've been amongst Christian folk where it's an unhappy place. There's this sense of Christ present and there's this sense of Jesus with us and that makes a difference. 
What about the Ethiopian eunuch? Do you remember his story in Acts chapter 6? After getting saved, he went on his way rejoicing. Do you remember that? John Piper, a Bible teacher and pastor, says this, It's the reign of God triumphing over everything that stands between you and everlasting life and joy. If you will treasure it more than anything else. That joy comes when we treasure God more than anything else. There's a story about a, uh, some American Christians and um, Mark um, might identify with this. They were travelling around the world and they came into Korea. They were visiting Korea and they saw by the side of the road a field in which a boy was pulling a, a rather crude plough while the old man, could have been his father or his grandfather, was holding the plough handles and guiding it along the road. And one of the tourists was a little bit amused and he took a, a photo of the scene and then he turned to the missionary that he was with and said, uh, this missionary was their interpreter, he said, uh, that's a curious picture. I suppose they are very poor. And the guide replied this, yes, that is the family of Chi Nui, is the man's name. And when the place of worship was being built, they were eager to give something to it, but they had no money. So they sold their only ox and gave the money to the church This spring, they are pulling the plough themselves. They wanted to honour God with a gift to this building program and that's what they did. They sold their ox and they are pulling the plough themselves. The men were silent for several moments, the story says. And then the second man replied, that must have been a real sacrifice. To which the guide said, they don't call it that. They thought it was fortunate that they had an ox to sell. Interesting, hey? Perhaps the test of our commitment is whether we're willing to make sacrifices to the Lord when he asks them of us. Finally, this morning, the uh, final principle of this parable, I believe that salvation is free, but it's costly. Does everybody understand that? Salvation is free. We can't earn our salvation. But in being saved, it costs us. Scripture is clear, salvation is not for sale. We talk, I talked earlier about Simon Magus, the, uh, the man who tried to spend money to get into the kingdom of God and Paul rebuked him in Acts chapter 8. Paul said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. When I hear what Christians go through in many parts of the world, I'm reminded of the cost that it comes in following Christ. And in 2 Timothy we're told, oops, that's the Acts 1, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a cost. There's a cost in following Jesus. One Bible scholar, D.A. Carson, said this, the kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything else to secure it. How lightly do we hold on to the things that we have? How lightly do we uh, hold on to those things that we've put a lot of time and energy and effort into? Uh, What if God says, I want you to leave those things behind and go somewhere for me? How hard that would be for some of us. It would be hard for me. And yet if we're truly doing what God wants us to do, and some of us have done it, haven't we? We've, We've left friends, family, Uh, possessions, house behind to go and do what God wants us to do. 
God's still asking people to do that today because salvation is free but the price of commitment in following Jesus is costly. Jesus said it himself. Well, in fact, uh, God said it. uh, Jesus said it. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There is a cost in following Jesus. As I finish this morning, I just want to remind you of the the Jesuits and the vows that they took, poverty, chastity, obedience, they went to places because God directed them to. Not that we should take vows of poverty, chastity, can't do that now, and, and obedience, but God might ask us to do things that means putting aside other things. True treasure is found only in the kingdom of Christ. And one pastor made this point. There are two things that stand out in these parables what you need to give up and what you, need to, what you stand to gain when you give it up. The incredible treasure, the pearl of great price. Imagine this. Oh, where are you? It's locked up on me. Next one. Thanks, Rolf, for me flicking along. That's it. Imagine this. Believe it or not, that's a real pearl. Uh, it was found in, a, in an oyster in Western Australia. It's one of the largest pearls that's ever been grown over there. But imagine if you were a customer and you wanted to buy that priceless pearl and you went to the uh, salesperson and you said, how much is that pearl? He said to you, well, it's very expensive. But how much? Well, a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Of course anyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was expensive? Yes, well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. You make up your mind there and then, right, I'm going to buy that pearl. Well, what do you have, he asks. So you pull out your pockets and you empty your wallet out and I've got $40 in my wallet, I've got $1,000 in the bank. Yep, that's all I have. Right, we'll take that. But it's not enough, the seller says. Hmm. What else do you have? Well, nothing at all. You know, where do you live? Uh, in my house. Oh, you have a house. Well, uh, let's include that in the price. Anything else? Well, I've got a caravan. Oh, you've got a caravan. That goes in the price as well. Who do you live with? My wife. She goes in the price as well. But I've got nothing left now. Are you sure? If you want to buy this pearl, you have to spend it, you have to sell everything. Oh, I almost forgot the seller says. You have yourself too. Everything becomes mine, the seller says. The wife the caravan, the house, the money, and you too. One uh, evangelist, Juan Carlos Ortiz said that God requires all of us that then he can give us the treasure that Jesus is. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to give over all of ourselves to God? That's the challenge of these parables. Throughout history, uh, people have done it and God has blessed peoples and nations and kingdoms in incredible ways because people have. If we really believe the words of the song that we just learnt this morning, that we ask God to change our nation, he requires us to say, here I am Lord, all of me. Use me in any way you can. Are we prepared to do that today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these uh, three small verses with such incredible uh, challenge for us in them. We thank you and praise you 
that we do know Jesus, the greatest treasure of all, that we are secure in the kingdom of God because of who he is and what he's done. But we know, Lord, that there's a cost and that cost is one of following Jesus, that cost is one of being his disciples, being his ambassadors, being uh, visible for him wherever we go. Father, for some of us, you've asked us to uh, uproot from our, our heritage and our homes, our families elsewhere and to come to this place and to go beyond here to other places so that others might hear the good news of Jesus, the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, if you're saying that to us today, that you want us to go somewhere else and do something else for you, then please confirm that over and over again. Make our hearts willing. We thank you for the examples that we've seen and we thank you for the plan that you have for this world. We pray for our nation that, Father, you'll raise up followers of Jesus that will stand out and let other people see what Jesus is like. Father, thank you for your word today. Let, it, let, it, let us mull over it, Lord, during the week. Just bring those parables back, the treasure and the pearl, and help us to surrender our lives completely to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sean.